Well, I'd like to welcome everybody to the first MAP podcast. At this stage, we haven't decided whether MAP will stand for, well, stand strictly for Malaria Atlas Project, or if it might be more generally Maximum A Posteriore, because the idea of the podcast is to talk with people like our guest Sam today about the um, um, statistical methods which we use to map malaria and other diseases. Um, and so sometimes that'll mean talking specifically about epidemiology and other times more about um, mathematical statistics and uh, probability theory. But uh, we'll see how that, this evolves uh, depending on the success of uh, this episode and, uh, and uh, you know, how well Sam does as a guest. So let me introduce Sam properly. His name is Sam Batt. Uh, he's a lecturer in geostatistics at Imperial College London. And Sam was one of the uh, first statisticians to, um, to work on the Malaria Atlas project. So he'll tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll get into a conversation about the type of statistical methods which Sam's been working with most recently and, uh, and how he's using those to improve our mapping of malaria. So Sam, welcome. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to start by asking you about... Um, how you came to work for the MAP team and uh, what your background was in, uh, in terms of what you did for undergraduate degree and, uh, and your PhD studies. So how you came to, um, uh, to get into uh, model-based geostatistics. So um, I, I, I change fields quite often, um, as I think many people have in the Malaria Atlas group. No one's really an epidemiologist or really a statistician. Everyone seems to come from somewhere else. Um, I did my undergraduate in chemical and bioprocess engineering mm-hmm. at Bath. Um, found that I really disliked engineering and, uh, and wanted to change to um, something a bit more computational and a bit more technical. Um, and I did a, did a master's in computational biology. Um, it, was, it was a part three type master's at, at Cambridge. Um, and really enjoyed that and thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to pursue some more research. Um, and uh, started a PhD in Oxford in statistical genetics, in viral genetics, um, which was a really nice field and allowed me to, to learn more technical details. But So that was in the zoology department? That was in the department of zoology, yeah, um, with uh, Dr. Oliver, well, Professor Oliver Pybus now. Right, yeah. Um, uh, and then that was looking at adaptation, and a very, very different type of statistics to the kind of stuff we do in MAP. Um, but still, the, the main interest that I had was in stochastic processes, and like many people who love statistics, you start gravitating towards the field that you actually like, rather than just, say, doing undergraduate in statistics and continuing in that vein mm. for your entire career. Um, and then I, I came to work with uh, Simon Hay, one of the founding members of the MAP group, and with Pete Getting, the current uh, head of the MAP group. That was um, as a postdoc? Or that was yeah. as a postdoc, yeah, and I was working on dengue. Um, and initially the idea was uh, to build spatial models for dengue, so not, mm-hmm. not really what we've done in the Malaria Atlas project, um, and a little bit more machine learning and less about stochastic processes. Um, and finally an opening opened in Pete's group, I was Pete's first mm-hmm. postdoc um, in the Malaria Atlas project, and um, we started working together on the, um, on the big new steps for malaria, specifically trying to figure out what the hypothesis, the hypothesis we're trying to figure out was what has been the change in malaria from 2000 to 2015 in response mm. to interventions. Because, uh, as you know, but perhaps many of the in the audience don't realise that over the last um, 15, 16 years now, there's been a huge international effort um, in, in terms of technical capability and in terms of raw input of interventions into uh, African countries to try to drive down malaria. 
but as with many of these policies, uh, the scale is so large that to actually measure and scientifically test what was the effect of those interventions um, is quite challenging. And so that's how I came into math, and that's my background. But my primary interests are in statistics and machine learning mm-hmm. as much as I can manage. Right. So I'll I definitely like to ask you a bit more about the methods you used for the dengue paper later on. Um, and uh, being very modest, I know that you didn't mention uh, that, in fact, that dengue work led to a nature paper, oh, first that. author. Um, very impressive. But um, so I think perhaps for, um, uh, for some of those viewers who are not familiar with the actual Malaria Atlas project itself, I was wondering if you could tell us um, just briefly... What are the nature of what is the nature of the project? I mean, for people who really haven't heard much about it, the um, acronym uh, Malaria Atlas Project Map suggests that maps is is something that we're making. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little about how we make those maps, uh, just broadly, and then um, who are the end users of those maps? Excellent. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a bit of history behind it. Um, initially, when the Malaria Atlas Project was started, um, it started in zoology with um, David Rogers. Um, who was looking at remotely sensed data. And remotely sensed data is when a satellite flies across the, the Earth and measures something at a very high resolution, say the amount of infrared reflected back as a measure of greenness. Yeah. So the Malaria Atlas Project initially looked at the, the changes in greenness in the highlands of Kenya and tried to, tried to figure out, well, how was that linked with the resurgence of malaria? Following that, MAP started a huge um, data troll effort where they try to collect data from published data sources and from everywhere possible. Mm. And, and from that, the idea was to build a statistical model that could actually um, map out measures of malaria. Now, when I say malaria, that's, that's, that's a rather vague concept. What do we actually want to map? Um, we need something that's epidemiologically relevant, things like um, incidence, the number of new infections um, of malaria at a given time. Um, or uh, what they call the entomological inoculation rate, which is the number of times that an infected mosquito bites an individual over a period of time. Definitely well, that, uh, sorry, just to interrupt, that uh, epidemiological inoculation rate was a fascinating concept for me when I came from astronomy yes, yes. To, to study malaria. Um, so entomological inoculation is obviously the mosquito, uh, is the vector which, uh, which inoculates with sporozoites, the, uh, the human, potential human host. Yep. Um, but when I was, uh, you know, sort of from a quantitative perspective, when you start getting into malaria, it's uh, it's fascinating to see the scale of the actual number of bites uh, yeah, that un- is represented un- by un- the un- epidemiological un- inoculation rate. And indeed, in some places, uh, you'll have uh, the EIR is 500 bites per person per year. I think that's uh, it. Just to me, seems um, incredible. And that's not 500 single mosquito bites. That's 500 infectious potentially infectious mosquito bites. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's the scale of the problem we're working mm-hmm. with in Africa. Um, and yeah, it's, it's actually an unbelievable quantity. What we do map out is, is prevalence, right. which is when you, you go to a village and you, and you sample the number of individuals using these, um, these rapid diagnostic tests. They just take a blood spot mm-hmm. and they determine whether you have the malarial parasite in your blood um, out of the total number. So it's, it's a simple binomial variable. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when, you, when you look at that measure of, of what they call prevalence, it's the mm. ratio of those two, or parasite rate, they're all the same, same term, um, it doesn't give you the understanding that EIR sometimes does in terms of the, you can have a prevalence of 100%, but that's still, again, based on the sample that you have there. Mm. Um, and it doesn't tell you something about the force of infection in the same way that 
EIR does. So it is quite mind-boggling to have places which have 500 infectious bites um, per person per year. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's that's you know in the absence of any interventions, that either your immune system gets it or you you ultimately have to pass, mm. um, which is a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Really. I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but um, no. So, so yeah, the yeah. maps. The, the, the we 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 got we, we choose a measure um, which we use as, which map traditionally has been using prevalence standardized mm-hmm. to an age of two to ten because right. that's epidemiologically relevant, and then we, we use um, Gaussian process regression and we build a bunch of maps, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately those maps are predicted at a five kilometer resolution, um, and then they are um, disseminated to either other modelers, to use it as a starting point yeah. for the force of infection. But more often nowadays, we work directly with countries um, to actually give them an idea of which areas are high, which areas are low, um, and where intervention should be put in. Um, we also use these maps to give big, large statements for uh, the WHO. We're a WHO collaborating center. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and try to assist the WHO by uh, giving them information about... Um, what, what, what are the changes and what are the current state of affairs? So we, we contribute a lot to the World Malaria Report um, every year. Yeah. So yeah, for end users, it's a, it's a broad spectrum of people, like uh, both the malaria control programs on the ground, as well as these uh, supranational organizations like the WHO. And other research groups mm-hmm. as well, um, which helps you know, validate our work. And yeah. um, once, once you have a force of infection, you can then give it to a modeling group, such as they have at Imperial, or at um, the Swiss Tropical, and uh, and they can then use that as a starting point to then run a bunch of simulations, which can then again feed back to countries. Yep. So it's all one big um, academic community that gets along pretty well. Yeah, um, certainly when we were up at the MMC the other week, which is, stands for Malaria Modeling Consortium, uh, it was it was very interesting to work with the modelers and as far as um, deciding or determining what we could supply in terms of um, uh, maps of, of existing transmission to support their... Uh, studies and predict projections as far as um, yeah. how malaria might develop um, the cons- uh, the cons- other different interventions. Yeah, the consensus and, and the, the whole international communities urged to move as fast as possible to elimination. Hmm. Um, it's really great and I think the modelling does have its place in there along with working directly with countries to actually get hmm. get things done and get, get modelling products used. There's no point in just getting a, a paper out that uh, none of the countries actually use and it's just mm. of academic interest. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so we've talked about the products which go into making the maps. We have um, uh, satellite images which provide things like rainfall, temperature, different environmental measures, um, or to be more precise, I should say proxies for rainfall because as our uh, geographers will point out, it's very difficult to um, yeah. construct a good measure of rainfall. In any case, we have these high-resolution covariates um, and we also have um, measures of prevalence or perhaps some other different metrics like the entomological inoculation rate. Mm. And so we're going to take those two and then the statistical model comes in uh, in, in what particular way? Well, we, we, um, the statistical model is the is Gaussian process regression, which is mm. um, a huge method now in machine learning over the last 20 years. It, mm. it came back from relative obscurity, if it ever was there. And... And, um, and it's been used in a wide variety of applications. Now, the reason that Gaussian process regression is, is so useful is that, first of all, it, it takes the, you have some data and, and you have a likelihood that, say, describes that data, for example, mm-hmm. when you have um, 
number of positive or number of total malaria individuals, you, you use a, a binomial likelihood to describe that. But you want that likelihood to be parameterized by an observational model. And the observational model, we use the Gaussian process or stochastic process. And the Gaussian process is, in its, in its formal definition, well, let's just go with the informal one just for the audience. You can just think of it as, as a multivariate normal. So it has an underlying mean, but then it also has um, a covariance function. And, and the covariance is, is helping to describe um, how the, a similarity measure, that's what it does. So in the, in the, in the application for malaria mapping, um, we use that covariance measure to measure spatial correlation or spatial temporal autocorrelation. Right. And, and the reason that this is so important is for malaria is that while you use measures of greenness and measures of urbanicity and all of these other factors um, to describe a certain mean mm -hmm. prevalence, when, when, when you look at what's left behind there, there's still quite a lot of structure. Mm. And if you can account for that structure, um, then you can greatly improve your predictive capacity and improve how well your model can predict new areas. Um, and so leveraging this spatial correlation or spatial temporal correlation through a Gaussian process um, provides a very, very solid model for disease mapping in this context. Um, and that's initially what was, was done in, in the Malaria Atlas project. In fact, the, the original Malaria Atlas project maps were looking just at spatial autocorrelation. They didn't include mm -hmm. any covariance other than urbanicity. So this is um, going back to Pete's uh, 2008 map? This is going back to, yeah, Pete, Pete and Simon's 2007 mm -hmm. map. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then, of course, the next iteration of it um, in 2010, I believe, was um, uh, including covariance as linear terms. Right. So initially just uh, using the Gaussian process purely to do all the heavy lifting uh, yeah. and helping out uh, subsequently with the covariance? With the covariance, yeah. Oh, I hadn't even uh, appreciated that myself, actually. No, I, it, it's the quite... was just with the GPs. It's, it's quite unbelievable, actually, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you use, use the Gaussian process to essentially get the spatial autocorrelation, mm. um, but then you can parameterize the mean function on there as well, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, how do you think... Um, uh, our mapping has evolved uh, as far as certainly this in this historical context we started uh, just with using the GP to um, uh, to uh, to do all this heavy lifting and then we had the covariates to help uh, you know improve our prediction of the mean um, what do you think has been the most important developments um, without leading the witness side perhaps throw my head in the ring to say the endless software has been particularly important. It's, but, been, uh, it's been particularly important. Yeah. I mean, the, when, when, when Pete and uh, the original map founders started doing this Gaussian process regression, mm -hmm. um, they were running into, into two of the most fundamental problems with working with Gaussian processes. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, um, when, when actually evaluating uh, predictions are actually fitting the Gaussian process, you have to invert a matrix. Yeah. Now that matrix is the data times data size. So if you have... 10,000 data points, you have mm -hmm. a matrix with 10,000 columns and 10,000 rows. Right. Now, to invert that matrix has, has the complexity of, of n cubed, so mm -hmm. it's, it, it scales as if you add uh, 10 more points, it scales to the cube. And so it quickly becomes unbelievably difficult to actually invert these matrices right. in their full dense form. And so a large amount of um, literature in Gaussian processes um, has been to, to solve this issue. Right. The second so to look for scalings, uh, computational cost scalings, yeah. which are which are less than n to the n cubed. Exactly. Yeah. And and in my view, Gaussian process regression is, is a fundamentally Bayesian approach. 
um, mm. non-Bayesian equivalents go by the name of kernel ridge regression and, uh, mm. and methods like that. Um, and so to evaluate the posterior again becomes the second challenge, which is to, to use, in the original sense, uh, Pete and the rest of the MAP team used a, a Gibbs sampler, right. um, which is very slow, very inefficient, mm. suffered from huge autocorrelated effects, um, which is a huge problem. And the, these two issues were were absolutely deal-breaking for the, for the MAP project. Mm. I mean, they, this is little known to everyone, I think the original map models were run on the Amazon Elastic Cloud for several months, right? Um, yeah. which, which doesn't give you the flexibility to try out different models um, and different parameterizations. Um, and it, it was very, at least as we refer to it now, vanilla. Yeah, um, and certainly just that, that month-long timescale to, uh, to, to run a complete simulation and, and start to get an idea of whether the model has actually yeah. fit correctly, whether you know, the, the, everything looks plausible, uh, it, that, that whole process of model testing it just uh, it's really difficult to conduct when you have such long run times and, and depending who you speak to if you, if you speak to the the stand mm. bunch uh, they'll claim that those posteriors even if you run them for that long will still be because completely, of uh, the Gibbs sampling because yeah. of the Gibbs, right. the Gibbs sampling fundamental won't solve the pathological problems mm -hmm. of the actual space that you're trying to explore um, so you're getting almost the worst of both worlds. You know? Right, long run time and long, long, long time and perhaps not uh, even a convergent solution. Sample with a difficult to diagnose convergence, right? Um, so it's unbelievable. So Inla came in, and um, for those who don't know, the Inla is just a, it's a glorified and really well programmed Laplace approximation, where essentially you're putting you're putting a Gaussian over your posterior, mm -hmm. um, centered and, and, and rotated as best as you can. Mm. Um, but the other great revolution of it was um, Finn, Finn Lindgren, mm -hmm. um, came up with this uh, stochastic partial differential equation formulation. Right. Now, the covariance function that's been used in these Gaussian processes, and so the covariance function describes um, how the similarity and distance between two points decays as time goes by, mm -hmm. how smooth that is, how rough that is, um, what the functions look like in that, in the, in, on the shape of that. Right. Um, makes effectively a, a geometrical, um, it places some kind of, um, I suppose, a, a geometrical shape to, yeah. to, the expect, to the expected noise. Like, Is that a fair way to say it? Technically, yeah. I mean, technically, it, so it defines a, a set of functions mm. that could represent the special autocorrelated structure. Mm. Um, it allows these functions to be jagged, smooth, and, and very mm. different ways. Um, and these functions, of course, stochastic processes in their own, yeah. in their own sense. Um, so what, what Finn did was he, used, he, he figured out that there was an explicit link between these maternal covariance functions that are used in, mm -hmm. um, in spatial mapping. In fact, mm -hmm. it was Peter Digley who first introduced and said how appropriate the maternal is for spatial mapping. Right. It doesn't have concentration of measure problems that the more common squared exponential or Gaussian kernel have. Okay. Um, yeah. It has a lot of flexibility. Um, it's Certainly, it's easier to um, produce a, a well-conditioned uh, yes. covariance matrix. Sometimes the squared exponential squared uh, well, we, runs into some problems. We always have to put these uh, these jitter, mm -hmm. um, but that's just something everyone ignores. Or <laughs> another trick I've seen is to uh, raise it to the power of one point nine nine instead right. of to the power of two. That's right. Yeah, just to just um, to just to, to get it to get the matrix to yeah. be for the audience to be a positive definite, which is the uh, requirement. Right. Um, for a covariance matrix. So, so Finn found the explicit link between a uh, stochastic differential, partial differential equation from Whittle mm -hmm. um, and the Matern, and found that a weak solution to the stochastic differential equation mm. um, solved through, through Green's, Green's function mm -hmm. um, can be uh, made to be Markovian. Okay. And, um, and so the, the solution to the stochastic differential equation at a set, at a set of nodes mm -hmm. 
um, can then provide a skeleton for that actual maternal field with extremely high accuracy. Right. Now, there, there are a large number of benefits for this. Um, first of all, you know, reducing your problem, say, from 20,000 points to 500 nodes, mm -hmm. and then simply evaluating the, the field at those nodes and then interpolating right. in, into, into different areas reduces the, the dimensionality of the problem hugely. Right. And this is an absolute game changer. But also, the interesting statistical part of this is that um, Finn's uh, SPDE model was a, a generalization of the very famous BSAG model, right. um, the conditional autoregression model, except in continuous spaces, something that I think BSAG would have loved, and I think Finn thinks that too. Yeah. Um, and so you can, you can then use Gauss Markov random fields, which have a large number of um, very, very good computational properties, and help reduce down that complexity of O, N cubed to something much, much less. Right. Um, and, and you can truly keep following this down the pipeline and, and, and in some way have really close to linear properties mm -hmm. with, the, with the SPD model. And then the SPD model can be made into spatial-temporal models, and in India the way they do this is through chronicle products. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, there are the, you can do a chronicle product with, with many other different functions, but generally in India it's done through the AR1 function. Last night I was uh, burning up on my inlaw knowledge, no, and in fact I um, I had a look at this uh, 2017 paper, which is a um, something of a review. Um, yeah, the review. Yeah, just came review out. Review is right. I have to say, Havard Rue is one of the I think the first author, um, and that was interesting because first of all, it gives a very good summary of some of the recent yeah, uh, fantastic paper. recent applications of inlaw in in disease mapping, but also various uh, you know financial or, or other types of. Um, types of studies looking at um, uh, map making and also um, uh, time series modeling. But um, I, one thing that I was reminded of again that I, I tend to forget is the, um, just how efficient the Laplace approximation is oh, in scaling, in terms of scaling with number of data points. So for this um, under an IID sampling scenario, which of course is, uh, is unlikely to be the case for, a, for a, um, uh, you know, a, a true spatial mapping problem, but just for the vanilla Example: It's um, uh, the convergence of the Laplace approximation is um, in power n yeah. or in, of order n, which is uh, which is um, quite impressive compared is, to ordinary Monte Carlo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is root um, n convergence. Yeah, it, it's pretty. It's pretty great, and there are nice properties of it. I mean, the, there are problems with it when you're looking at when you're fitting Gaussian likelihoods. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful. Yeah. When you're fitting non-Gaussian likelihoods, you know, this is where the nested part comes in for the inner, yeah. not just the standard vanilla and the plus. Mm -hmm. um, and it still does work very well, um, but, you know, unknown to most, and I think, you know, Peter Digger will be the first one to say this, mm. um, it does require a lot of expert knowledge to get the tuning right. You really have to be, you know, looking at, at whether your Laplace approximation is actually representing your posterior well in terms of coverage and right. in terms of the point estimates. So, um, so this is what... Uh, this tuning is what's gone into the Inla code for the most standard or the most common geostatistical models, right? Yeah, so yeah exactly. Within this family of um, uh, binomial GP regressions, linear predictors, uh, I think much of that that fine tuning has been done. It has been done, and, and yeah. that's that's great for the end user. So right, they don't have yeah. to worry about it. But I mean, a huge amount. The appreciation should be that a huge amount has gone into the actual software to actually make it, yeah, um, friendly for for users. To use it. I mean, the, the only problem with it is sometimes the flexibility can be there because it is a general package yeah. um, and there are a large number of models, but you know, you, you're restricted in terms of how far you can go with that. Yeah. But I mean, as we've shown, you can go very, very far with it. Right. Um, and ultimately, it's not 
that difficult to code up, um, given that a lot of the libraries already covered mm-hmm. up by Hovet, Dan Simpson, and Finn, and yeah. the whole in the team. Yeah. Um, so, other than uh, the use of um, software like Inla, what other methods have you been exploring uh, to um, uh, to combat this uh, these scaling challenges with the covariance matrix? Well, so so with the, the there's there's two issues. I should, there's a third issue I should add, other than, okay. just, inv- other right. than just evaluating the posterior and um, and the scaling of the matrix. The third issue is actually the, the predictive power of these models. Right. Right? Um, in that, when, when you were fitting a normal MBG model, um, I say MBG model-based geostatistics model, right. yep. um, the, the original model set that we did in the Malaritas project, are you fitting just a generic in the model? So just uh, to be clear, generic MBG model would be um, uh, linear covariate predictors exactly. plus a, a Gaussian process plus a covariance for, function, the, right. for the residual noise. So you can just think of it as, as a linear model, but then jointly fitted with a covariance added on there that allows shrink, Bayesian shrinkage. Yeah. Um, now, th- th- there are, of course, huge deficiencies with the linear model. For, for some problems, like uh, onchocerciasis, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, a, linear co- a linear model is an extremely good fit, then when you add in the covariance matrix, you can get some good... Good um, results from that, but if you say trying to use model-based geostatistics for um, mapping HIV, for example, right. you're going to find very, very large deficiencies with the linear model because what you're really trying to map is, is a very complicated non-linear interacting function mm. where the covariates coming in, such as urbanicity or aridity, are, are going to act as proxies for mm. socio-demographic phenomena that you don't actually have yeah. data to measure, um, and so. The standard in the model takes a linear basis or linear covariate and then fits the covariance function to it. The covariance function choice is always got to be the Mater because okay. you're working yeah. with the SPD model. So there are constraints of it. Now, I think that's great for application, but sometimes that doesn't work mm-hmm. as well. And so some of the work that we've been doing recently is, is um, well, actually, it's an interesting story. So uh, there was this competition on Kaggle. Right. It was, it was, yeah. it was basically um, mapping West Nile virus in... Uh, Chicago. So you need to predict it. We need to predict it in Chicago. They they gave you data in two years and then had to predict another year. For those who don't know, Kaggle's this competition where um, you you try to get the best predictive score. It's quite fun, Mm -hmm. but it's impossible to get high scores because you have to dedicate a huge amount of time at it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I threw the, uh, you know, I thought, well, most, most people on this Kaggle competition will be uh, standard machine learners that mm-hmm. do Facebook. They're not really going to be working with the spatial methods um, in, the way yeah. that, in the way that they should. Um, and so I went and I, I threw the standard uh, spatial techniques that we had at the problem. Mm. And actually, we did, did quite well. So what sort of um, well, uh, we, we stuck, I mean, did we get in? Sadly, because... I do too much. Uh-huh. I didn't continue too much, but yeah, we were in the in the top uh, five or ten percent. Right. Um, initially, okay. I should add initially. Initially, things, things quickly yep. things quickly spiral after after people do more and more. But I, I was wondering why on earth, what on earth are these people doing who are getting mm-hmm. the score better than me? We're doing industry standard model based geostatistics. Why are mm-hmm. we doing better? Um, and come the Kaggle uh, forums and realize that everyone just uses ensembles. Okay. Um, and then thought, well, why don't why don't we see how that works for malaria? Right. Um, and, and the key is this, this paper by uh, probably one of the greatest statisticians of our age, I think, David Woolport, mm-hmm. um, called stack generalization, which was a way to create an ensemble um, such that you, you're trying to maximize your predictive capacity. So ensembles are always quintessentially trying to work with the, with the bias variance trade-off right. and adding another term on it the covariance term onto it, and um, there's quite a lot of work going into that. Mm. But stack generalization comes in and essentially it's, it's trying to generalize a generalizer. 
So you have a model, right. and it predicts a certain it predicts a certain malaria surface, mm-hmm. and then you add another model on top of that that then tries to correct that, okay. but while yeah. taking in multiple yeah. different types of predictions. Right. So the, just to be clear, the ensemble that we're talking about is an ensemble of different models. Um, Depending on the context, some of those could be GPs, which are predicting. Some of them, they, they could be. Perhaps they're not at all. No. Some could be um, just so, linear models or machine learning models. That's the thing, because alongside with Gaussian process regression, a huge amount of work has been going into boosted regression trees, right. random forests, and they're finding huge applications mm-hmm. all over Mars, multivariate adaptive regression splines. Um, your dengue nature paper was a BRT? BRT, yeah. Regression and, tree. and BR, you know, boosting is a truly remarkable mm-hmm. algorithm in terms of. Um, just how well it, it predicts um, is, is truly a remarkable algorithm. Right. Um, and when applied to regression trees, it does very, very well. So, you, you know, but, but, boost, but things like random forests are just bagging. They're just averaging. And the way that they manipulate the bias variance trade-off is through the averaging, they're trying to reduce down the variance term right. on, that, on the bias yeah. variance trade-off. Um, but as opposed to just simple averaging, we can actually do weighted averaging. So weight different models from how good they contribute towards mm-hmm. um, the final final result in the ensemble. Right. But when weighting different models, you're going to basically pick the model that, that most overfits the data. If, so, okay, that's if you're just comparing there within it, sample. Yeah, if you're just comparing within sample. Okay. okay. And this is where stack generalization mm-hmm. comes in. Um, and it's a fascinating paper. I recommend everyone reads it. But essentially what we've done recently is, um, well, a paper which of course you're heavily involved in, um, is a... Uh, is, um, to, to use uh, stack generalization approaches um, right. to, to predict malaria. But the, the key innovation we're, we're looking at is that our ensemble is itself a Gaussian process. So we take multiple right. different machine learning methods, mm-hmm. they then contribute towards the mean function now mm-hmm. of the Gaussian process, yep. and then we model any residual variation away from that mean. And essentially what we're doing is, rather than just taking linear terms in the mean, we're going to pass it through a bunch of machine learning methods right. and predict new more, I say the word potent, highly predictable mm-hmm. um, mean mean functions that then you can just uh, that can generalize a lot better right. than um, just a linear linear basis. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can expand this, and it, it creates a flexible framework. And um, these methods are working very well in a wide variety of applications. They're being used at IHME to map uh, IHME, the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, to map. Um, Childhood and five mortality. Mm. Um, I'm using it to map uh, HIV with high accuracy. Yeah. Um, and so this has been a great innovation. So, that's so, so what I had difficulty with initially when we started to think about these uh, introducing these machine learning models into into our existing Bayesian framework was that ultimately it's uh, not the same as for linear predictors where you can fit simultaneously the fit the coefficients acting on those terms. And the uh, and the spatial residuals, yeah. because of the nature of these machine learning models, which themselves are, um, uh, you know, use a, um, an internal cross validation type of procedure to um, to learn their uh, their hyperparameters or the controlling parameters. Uh, ultimately, what we have to do is fit first the machine learning models on some portion of data, yeah. and then use the stacking to combine them. But the um, the combined result doesn't somehow feed back. To the initial fits, so in a sense, we've, we've um, made a cut to our Bayesian model. We've made a, we've made a cut to our Bayesian model, and I mean, you can you can bootstrap to get uncertainty mm-hmm. down, but it is it is not, and of course, you have to tune these models. You know, you, right. you, you, yeah. tuning a BRT is, is a hard task on its own. Now, if you mm-hmm. 
if you choose in random forest, you have to tune that. Elastic neck regression, you have to find the lambda parameter. Um, so it does get a little bit more complicated, and you're not linking the two steps together. Yeah. But um, it's it's uh, as Pete likes to say, it's horses for courses. Sure. It's yeah. um, what's what's best for for the purpose. If if we're looking for the best possible point estimate. Yeah. Um, I would throw the stacking hat in the ring and say that it's going to beat most methods. Yeah, it's and interesting it, it does. for us because we have um, a very clear goal, like a clear um, metric to evaluate our work, which is simply predictive accuracy, yeah. um, you know, sort of out of sample predictive accuracy, which um, is in some sense uh, easier, I suppose, than, uh, than some standard Bayesian modeling problems where you're trying to learn a parameter which, uh, which is inherently unknown yeah. and, uh, and uh, hard to sort of validate your performance other than through simulation. In this case, we have the, the nice ability to um, take, uh, you know, to use proper holdout samples yeah, exactly. to, to compare methods. And so this is, I suppose, the motivation for, um, uh, for exploring such a unusual it is. methods. And stacking comes under a lot of criticism because of its, um, people slightly don't understand. There's not a lot of theoretical properties of it. It's one of the things that works in practice. Right. Um, I always, you know, people who always try to go with asymptotics. Uh -huh. um, it's, it's helpful for designing algorithms, but you have to be careful not to live in, as they call it, asymptotia. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you know, you, 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 you can't rely on that too much as the design of the algorithms. Practically, the truth in machine learning is models that have very good asymptotic properties behave worse in, um, in many cases than models that don't have that many. Just because when you're looking at finite data cases, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, infinity is very far away. Sure. Um, um, so that, that's one of the big innovations. The, the next thing that, that we've started looking at is, um, again, on the same vein of trying to get away from this linear model, but in terms of a whole general fitting yeah. algorithm, is this uh, new method, I think it was in 2007 by Ben Recht and Ali Rahimi. Mm -hmm. um, it's called random Fourier features. Right. Now, the idea is that if you're, defining, if it, if you're deriving a point estimate for a Gaussian process uh, through, say, a, a ridge estimator, kernel ridge estimator, um, you can solve the optimization problem in either the primal or the dual space. So the primal space is what people are most useful, used to seeing uh, in terms of linear regression, least squares. Mm -hmm. The dual space ends up getting a big matrix that you have to invert, but has quite a, nice quite a lot of nice properties mm -hmm. with it. Now, in the days of small data, where these methods first came about, uh, the dual space was fine, because there wasn't enough data, it wasn't presenting problems to actually have issues of matrix inversion. Mm -hmm. But there's been a whole switch, wholesale switch now to looking at methods in the, in the prime, primal space now. Mm -hmm. Now, one, how random Fourier features come in is they're saying that, well, okay, we have a certain kernel, um, and kernels and covariances are the, the same. same. Right. Um, we have a certain kernel, and that kernel is defined by a positive definite function, right? Now, Doctor's theorem says that uh, any positive definite function um, admits a spectral density. Right. And to get that spectral density, we can evaluate it using a Fourier transformation. Okay, so this is a representation of the covariance it's a, it's as a, a... set of features, or a set of bases. In Fourier space. In Fourier right. space. Um, now, these, these uh, features, um, you know, we have, we have that integral, that annoying integral to solve in the, um, in the Fourier transform. Mm -hmm. But uh, as with everything in computational stats, we just Monte Carlo approximate that integral. And that's all that this... I don't want to belittle the achievement, mm -hmm. it's a fantastic achievement, but that's all that Fourier features is. Right. Um, so it's sampling modes from the Fourier space exactly. randomly. Just it's sampling from the, from the spectral density mm -hmm. and then 
using those those spectral densities to essentially evaluate the covariance, right? Yeah. So what that means practically is that you have this covariance function of this Gaussian process or this kernel, yeah. um, and you you put it through a, a random Fourier black box. I'll say that now. You can read up on the paper and okay. read more about it. Sure. Um, and then uh, it's just a, it's basically a, a bunch of signs, an addition of signs and cosines. Um, in solving the, the Fourier integral for the e to the i, but then you drop the complex part and you just keep the real parts. But um, all that does is it translates this uh, kernel into a set of basis functions or a set of features. Right. And then you just learn those features by linear regression mm. uh, and you add a regularizer, so a ridge regression mm. on it. Um, and so this simplifies the problem hugely. You know, there's a lot of people who can't get their heads around Gaussian processes, right. but know linear regression very well. Yes. Yeah. And of course, there's no and, reason why you can't do Bayesian linear regression. I should say, and have very fast tools for very, a linear regression model. Very fast tools, you know, from from the uh, the, the pioneering work of Boyd and mm. and others. There's, there's amazing methods to solve this. And, and what we do now is, I put all of this into um, Google's platform, TensorFlow. Right. Yeah. Um, which again is GPU compatible and, and can deal with these these large bits, and we can we can solve this using gradient descent now, because we can easily batch the problem in yeah. terms of linear regression, um, and so that that's fantastic from from our viewpoint because we can sort of now look at kernels which are thirty or forty dimensional, you know everyone looks at space and time, right, and and thinks well that's how you define a covariance function, mm -hmm. but why not space time and greenness? Now ultimately you're regularizing the problem. And, and you're using, you know, matern kernels, which have a student T spectral density um, and have good concentration properties. So you can actually evaluate these functions in, in, in 10, 15, 20 dimensions. Right. Um, and you get much better predictive capacity, but you also introduce spatiotemporally varying covariates by the very nature that you have this interacting, non-separable spatiotemporal yes. covariance function. Um, and this is just, this is fantastic. And it's, it's something I think that nobody really does in the field because a lot of people, INLA is, is inextricably linked, linked with mm -hmm. the 2D, and then you can make it into a temporal phenomenon. So everyone thinks that autocorrelation should only be this right. two-dimensional phenomenon. Um, of course, I'm happy to be, to be told this is all nonsense, but the well, I guess, is in the pudding. Yeah, yeah so I guess um, the first thing that, to, that strikes me as being potentially problematic <clears throat> excuse me, is the uh, dimensionality of the parameter space. So... Uh, when you have a Gaussian process or a kernel uh, trying to learn distances in a very high dimensional space, no. I suppose you'd hope that some of those dis some of those dimensions could be eventually ignored, so that so that the um, so the notion of distance between points so, so uh, what, becomes smaller in a sense. I mean, um, yeah, there's quite a lot of work in, in deep learning about this. It's the curse of dimensionality issue. Like, mm -hmm. how do you actually evaluate this kernel? All local kernels, ultimately, anything other than deep learning. Right. suffers from the curse of dimensionality and all local kernels will suffer from that right the key thing here is that we regularize the problem and so that we, we're actually not looking at that huge 30 dimensional subset we're actually looking at a subspace that's right. the regularization yeah. of it and this regularization actually works very well and um, in practice it works very well right is it a bayesian regularization or is it um well currently, i'd imagine a, a heuristic one based on some kind of cross-validation currently it's, it's, i mean in the tensorflow you could do both right currently we're doing frequentist okay but you could just you could just put normal normal priors on it and do and evaluate a, a posterior using hamiltonian monte carlo and, and um yeah and do bayesian bayesian regularization as well there's, there's no no problem with that 
they're the same. But the other the other key is that um, in the work that we do, we do uh, automatic relevance determination. This is where um, you shrink the length scale right. across either of the dimensions for their mm-hmm. importance. But I uh, I funnel that shrinking through because the shrinkage have to be positive. Right. I put them through the reticulated unit, which is just a, a reticulate function is the max of zero in x, and so it's just a straight line that then has a discontinuity of zero. And, oh, okay. and, and yeah. people in deep learning use this uh, because it promotes sparsity in neural networks. Right. And again, it, it promotes sparsity in in the bandwidth parameters. So if there's truly yeah. an insignificant dimension, uh-huh. that can just go down to zero and be and be, and be regularized right. out, right? So you end up with both regularizing your actual function to prevent it from being too complicated in those yeah. dimensions. You put reticulated units in to regularize, yeah. not really regularize, actually not regularization, but you put that into encourage sparsity in the bandwidth. Yeah. So, so it sounds sort of like an L1 sparsity penalty that you're achieving more uh, uh, with, with a sort of a secondary processing step. Yeah. But maybe I'm not getting the right idea on that. But. Well, yeah, it's, it's essentially, you know, it's, it's quite it's more simple than that. It's just um, you have a parameter yeah. for a bandwidth uh, and you can't let that be negative. Okay. So okay. you're not going to take the absolute value of that. Yeah. You could take the soft max of that so that it has a smooth sliding down to zero. Yes. Or you could take the reticulate, which is a very hard boundary. Right. And that just you're basically forbidding that parameter ever to ever be negative. Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That's just, just as simple. Uh, as yeah, I understand now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's probably we all we all used to thinking in a Bayesian framework. Yeah. The frequency when you just throw these, uh, yeah, these hacks, hacks at the problem right. and just lay yeah. it off. Um, so you do the do the things, and, and, and then you you can use a maternal covariance function that has much because the spectral density is a student t, and student okay. t has much better concentration properties than the yeah. Gaussian. Um, but you know, I found using the Gaussian gives you better predictive capacity and very reasonable results. Right. It's not it's not that you'd see you'd expect to see if the cursor dimensionality was a huge problem, all the length scales to just be the same. Yeah. To be uh, revert to a prior, because all the points are so far away in space that there's no learning. Of length scales in there, yeah. But you don't see that. You see, you hmm. see the results make sense in a, in, a, in a intuitive way. So doing things in this random Fourier features allows us to do these these amazing high dimensional problems, but also yeah. gives us this this um, flexibility to learn really complicated models. Yeah. So for example, in the malaria model, we now we, we have a term that's only um, that tells you what's the baseline level of malaria. We have a term that affects that. Uh, affects the intervention, so bed nets, mm-hmm. and restricts that to only be have a negative impact. Okay. Um, um, in the sense that more bed nets reduce malaria. Or do nothing. Yeah. But they never right. increase malaria. Because there'd be no causal. Well, there'd be no causal mechanism. So. But, yeah. you know, sometimes with the linear model and things, you can sure. end up with these weird yeah. inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, with the social demographic effect, uh, like housing, uh, electricity, again, mm-hmm. they'll either do nothing or decrease malaria. Right. And then you have the environmental functions that have complicated forms that can both increase and decrease malaria depending yeah. on where they are. Right. And so we can have this complicated additive model with each of these terms being a Gaussian process of its own, but mm. putting random Fourier features. Yeah. And solve this in an unbelievably fast amount of time in Google's TensorFlow platform using GPUs. And you can solve one of these prob- models in five minutes, six minutes. Yeah. Of course, you have to do a ton of cross-validation and tuning right. and all this. You have to be very careful with it. And you, but, you know, that's down to the researcher, yeah. not, not the method. Just because you have to tune something doesn't mean it's an inherently bad method. 
Uh, yeah, I think yeah, the use of these kind of uh, kind of techniques just comes back to the full um, uh, process of conducting inference. Uh, that yep. it's not simply fitting a model; it's a matter of model building, uh, model yeah. fitting, model, model checking, and model then checking. Uh, standing somehow over the whole thing and, and taking another yeah, look. Yeah, standing in the process, and ask, asking people on the ground, you know, is this nonsense? Do we mm. have to go all the way back to the start? But the you know the random Fourier features also allows you. Because remember, I said that every positive definite function has a spectral tensor. It's right. a probability measure, which you can think of a probability distribution. And the first thing you can think about there is, well, couldn't we just use mixture models to get any probability distribution? You mean for the spectral density to represent? For the spectral density. Yeah. And so and Andrew Gordon Wilson has done this. Uh -huh. um, and so this is a nice way forward into, into creating nice spatiotemporal or very complicated spectral mm -hmm. density. Again, the seminal work of Cressy where he derived non-separable spatial temporal functions from their spectral density. Yes. Okay, we could just use the spectral density. We don't have to, we don't, we don't have to, um, like using the spectral density does make life a lot easier in, in terms of uh, formulating non-separable spatial temporal functions or formulating different kernels. Yeah. Um, and so there are added benefits with that. Um, and so, so essentially, yeah, the, the new malaria mapping the work we're doing now in mapping residual transmission is moving away from the more vanilla stuff to, to, to right. giving the researcher the ability to to actually put in biological plausibility in there. Yeah. Which is the direction we're going in. It's it just to, to make, to include more domain knowledge or mechanism into these models so that, yeah. so that and that's what, that's what we're kind of doing now inferentially, but we're trying to do more of that. Right now. So before we run out of time, I think it would be worth uh, just quickly talking about this uh, related idea, which is that of um, trying to model uh, at the biological, at the epidemiological level uh, as a latent field, and then connecting that up to the observations. So this idea that we might model a surface of R0. Exactly, something. yeah. Um, and this is, this is huge, as in your work in, in serology, which mm -hmm. is, you know, you use the Gaussian process to, to model some latent parameter, which then feeds into a mechanism, which in your case is a Markov process. Right. Yeah. Some of the work being done at Imperial now with my, uh, my student is, again, have a special field in there, but then have a network process on top that defines right. um, an independent cascade model on how networks progress. And, you know, we could do this for a large number of diseases. For example, for HIV, we can learn the force of infection parameter right. as a latent variable, almost you get a map of this parameter. Yeah. And then based on that parameter, you have a mechanistic model that then takes you to the end. Right. So then the computational challenge, uh, which is added on top of all the Gaussian process machinery, uh, becomes this one of converting something uh, epidemiological and latent, like the R0, into something observable through an epidemiological model, which yeah. can be quite expensive. It is. And I mean, the idea of malaria, the force of infection... Um, or the, the vectorial capacity right. is much closer linked to the covariates than, say, prevalence. So the idea is that you might get a better fitting model, which yeah. possibly you can, possibly you can. I mean, considering Gaussian processes go through an almost infinite number of functions, mm. you know, a certain space, a Hilbert space of functions, right. that you have the choice yeah. of. Here, you, when you put it through the mechanism, you are implicitly reducing that that size down, right? So sometimes you might you might conceive it might not be the best predictive part. Yeah. But what you do get when you do that is everything for free. What I mean by that is, if you fit this joint spatial mechanistic model to say prevalence, yeah. well, we get the entire mechanistic model to play with, but calibrate it correctly. Right. Yeah. Which means you know, we, can, we can figure out what asymptomatic loads are, what infection is, we can throw counterfactual type questions at it. Yeah. Um, and so that is the direction that I think spatial mapping 
must go in mm-hmm. and, and will go in. Right. Um, and it's already been done in various veins um, in our simpler web where, where you're, you're throwing a, a discrete, well, a continuous time yeah. markov chain with a discrete assumption and I'm throwing an independent cascade mechanistic model at it. But the idea is still, you know, it's, it's to connect to a mechanism and, and so the likelihood is it's more or less a mechanism and then yeah. the process is still this GP or a stacking or a random Fourier feature or whatever your favorite learning method is in there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this is the exciting part of the future that, that sort of, we encourage people to, to join the, the MAP family and, and, uh, and work, work alongside these exciting projects. For sure. All right, well, let's wrap it up there and we can go get some lunch. So, in fact, uh, lunch today, we're welcoming a couple of new research assistants in the group. Yep. So pop out for uh, something good at the pub. But um, thank you, anybody who stayed uh, watching this long. And Yeah, uh, honestly, well done. Yeah, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll improve our delivery and, uh, and range of topics. But um, thanks a lot also to Sam for, um, thank you very much. Uh, for participating in this first Matt podcast.